Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and the New Books Network Partnership provide a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Lakshita Malik, and today I am joined by Dr. Vanita Reddy, Associate Professor at the Department of English at Texas A&M University. We are in conversation about her book, Fashioning Diaspora, Beauty, Femininity, and South Asian American Culture, published by Temple University Press in 2016. We look forward to hearing from Dr. Reddy about how she engages with questions of mobility and movement in her book, Fashioning Diaspora, Beauty, Femininity, and South Asian American Culture. Welcome, Dr. Reddy, and thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, Lakshita. It's a really an honor to be here, and I'm excited to have this conversation. Great. So I'm going to start by just asking how this project was conceived, and how did you decide to write about Asian American diaspora through the analytic of beauty? Yeah, that's a really a great question, and I actually love answering this question. So I, one answer is really not an academic answer. Um, in some ways, I think I've always been a student of beauty in a casual sense. So as a child growing up, I really loved watching the Miss America and Miss Universe pageants with my dad in the 80s, um, particularly delighting in, in the evening gown competitions. I always loved sequin dresses, which were quite popular in the 80s. Um, and then as a teenager, I actually participated in a really small regional beauty pageant, um, primarily as a dare from a friend. And I ended up winning the pageant. Um, this was in 1992, and it was a junior level competition. So girls who are 15 years old and under. I was actually really surprised that I won um, because I was only a handful um, of women of color contestants in the competition, which took place in North Texas, where I grew up. Um, 
And this was also around the time, right, sort of the early to mid 90s, that Miss Indias were winning global and international beauty pageants. Um, and I'm thinking here of Sushmita Sen and Aishwarya Rai, who won uh, Miss Universe and Miss World, respectively, um, in the mid 90s. And so there was this kind of, um, right, personal narrative that was kind of taking place with something I was seeing happening on the global stage um, in the Indian context. And then um, when I went to graduate school in the early 2000s, I really became intrigued by the way that beauty in general, in whatever standard or incarnation one could imagine it, was still so aspirational for so many women, despite our feminist sensibilities, or maybe as I would like to think of because of our feminist sensibilities. Um, and so I decided to kind of make that, you know, personal narrative and observation about beauty into an academic project early on. Um, so this is where the, I, I suppose the academic answer comes into play. So in the early 2000s, when I was starting my graduate work, there were certain tropes of beauty that I noticed that were marking India's entry into global modernity. So these were, for me, the beauty queen, the fashion model, and style commodities like Indochic, which I talk about in the third chapter of the book. Um, and there was also this enduring importance, I felt, um, that Asian women and South Asian women in particular gave to certain beauty practices or standards, like having fair skin, uh, big almond-shaped eyes, and long, black, thick hair, especially among South Indian women um, like myself. And I ended up writing my MA thesis on a case study of representations of beauty in India's largest circulating women's magazine uh, called Femina, which I think is still its uh, largest circulating lifestyle magazine. And this eventually became my first article publication. So actually, it's interesting because my initial interest was in beauty within South Asia itself, not really within the diaspora. Um, but there was already an emerging body of scholarship on beauty in the subcontinent. Um, and I'm thinking of the work of Radhika Parameshwar and my colleague at IU Bloomington, Goldie Osuri and others um, who were studying mostly beauty pageants, the, the Miss India pageants. And I began to notice the way that this global ideal of Indian beauty was making its way into the diaspora, such as in the rise of the popularity of Miss India USA pageants, which is the kind of diasporic version of the Miss India pageant. Um, and then in Indochic style um, fashions among my friends and the rise of lifestyle magazines, um, which I talk briefly about in the introduction of my book, such as Nirali, Sapna, and Anoki, they're mostly geared toward the South Asian diaspora in North America. But there really wasn't a lot of scholarship on beauty in the diasporic context. And this seemed really important to me for even how we think about Indian beauty circulating within the, within the Indian nation. So much of what I was reading about as a feminist, uh, South Asian feminist graduate student, you know, was talking about the way that NRI Capital, for example, was contributing to the rise 
of Indian right-wing Hindu nationalism on the subcontinent. So I already knew that the diaspora and the nation were kind of inextricably linked. Um, And so I wanted to think about that connection within the context of beauty and fashion. It's really impossible in some ways, as I hope comes across in the book, to think about nation and diaspora as completely disentangled with one another. So I suppose the answer to, you know, why diaspora is really that so much of the work that I was reading as a grad student um, on Indian nationalism was so connected to the diaspora. Um, And I suppose another part of this answer is really um, that I hope the method of transnational feminist critique and then the modes of literary and visual analysis that I use throughout the book really allow people to see how nation and diaspora are always in relation to each other. One of the reasons I start out the introduction with the anecdote of Nina Davaluri um, is precisely to illustrate this connection. So when she wins, um, for those who may not know, in 2014, Nina Davaluri is crowned the first Miss America of Indian descent. And when that happens, Indian media start hailing her as a daughter of the Indian nation, despite the fact that, as many critics pointed out, she actually wouldn't have been considered a viable candidate for a Miss India title because she would have been considered too dark skinned. Um, And so I was really interested, right, in the way that there was this kind of national claiming of Nina as a diasporic daughter of the Indian nation and how that articulated with this kind of earlier spate of Indian beauty queens uh, winning international pageants. Um, So there was that. And then there was a kind of separate concern with just the reading I had done on beauty within feminist thought that really tended to treat beauty as a punitive thing. And I'm thinking about like Naomi's Wolf seminal, The Beauty Myth, and Nancy Etkoff's um, Survival of the Prettiest, which is a book that basically shows that pretty people get more stuff in life, right? More opportunities, more money, et cetera. But, but none of these books that had gained so much popular attention and even to some extent academic critical attention really accounted for ethnic or diasporic context. Like the issue of racialized beauty was almost negligible um, in this work. So it was really both of those things. It was seeing how mainstream feminist discussions of beauty really left out race and diaspora as a consideration. And then also how um, diaspora was left out of the kind of Indian national conversation that people were having about beauty. Right. Uh, you raised so many important themes and concerns, and I'll get to those. But one of the things that really comes through and it sort of is really highlighted in your text is the intervention that you make about studying diaspora and the movement between diaspora and the nation as being as you're challenging the male centric understanding of that mm-hmm. relationship, mm-hmm. like you pointed out. So if you could talk a little more about the significance of this intervention that you're making, right? Moving away from this male centricism. Yeah. So I was really influenced by um, feminist and queer scholars such as Gayatri Gopinath, Martin Manalansan, and Jackie Alexander's work on queer diasporas early on as a graduate student. Actually, Dr. Gopinath was one of my um, 
mentors of my dissertation. And so her work was really influential here. Um, And in the last two chapters of the book, um, as you know from reading it, um, which are really on diasporic visual and performance art, all of the artists that I discuss are really interested in remediating these style commodities like the bindi and the sari in ways that challenge the hetero reproductive femininities um, that we normally associate with those style commodities and thus also the reproductive logic of diaspora. So, so, you know, one kind of genealogy is the queer diaspora genealogy that really informed um, the way that I thought about diaspora from the get go. I actually took a class on queer diasporas before I took, before I had even been introduced to the concept of diaspora. So I kind of, it was only, um, my understanding of diaspora as, you know, a hetero masculinist concept really only happened retroactively, if that makes sense, because I was already thinking about it as this kind of queer formation. Um, and it was only then that I realized, right, that so many of, um, like Paul Gilroy's work and Stuart Hall and even someone like Brent Hayes Edwards, you know, had really not thought about diaspora outside of these male connections. Um, And so I was, as I said, really influenced by these scholars. Um, But I also wanted to use the concept or the takeaways from theories of queer diaspora to think about frictions within heteronormative economies of beauty. So whereas scholars like Gopinath, Alexander, and Mana Lansan are really interested in, in centering queer subjects or sexual minority subjects within theories of diaspora, which typically don't right, address these subjects, um, I wasn't so interested in in the subject-centered model as I was, or in recuperating a queer subject, as I was in thinking about how even seemingly straightforward heteronormative economies of beauty actually yield these other, you know, these like queerer models of diaspora, or at least models, a model of diaspora with a queer sensibility. So for example, in chapter two, where I analyze the fiction of Jambalahiri, I think about the post-colonial Indian male subject as a queer figure um, because he's socialized into wanting the beauty of the female NRI. Um, And so whereas it might be easy to read that story as a kind of transnational romance between the post-colonial Indian male and the NRI woman, I actually argue that what's at stake in this story, um, the title story, Interpreter of Maladies, is that Mr. Kapasi, the male protagonist, uh, Indian protagonist, actually wants the beauty and sexuality of the female NRI, not that he's necessarily in love with her, although that might be going on as well. Um, And so this actually, you know, this shift into decentering male-centric narratives of diaspora really also became important to me because of the way that I understood beauty um, as a normatively feminine convention that typically circulates within this kind of apolitical or feminized domain, right? When we, we talk about beauty or we think about beauty, I don't think our first thought is this is a serious intellectual subject. Um, and so I wanted to think about how texts 
um, and even objects that are understood maybe as too frivolous for intellectual or political rehabilitation should be taken seriously, right, as objects of scholarship. Um, so even if, right, the kinds of belonging or sociality or collectivity that these objects and texts produce through beauty don't result in anything like a social mo movement, right, or a permanent collective, they're still worthy of our attention because they bring something into view that male-centered narratives of diaspora don't. And I think what they bring into view is ultimately more imaginative, um, which is a political statement. Um, so for example, in the chapter um, five, last chapter of the book, um, where I look at the performance artist Shelija Patel um, and her performance called Migritude, which is really a performance that is born out of um, being handed down <clears throat> this trousseau of marriage saris that her mother give, gifts to her. And she's sort of like, what am I going to do with this trousseau of sari? She's a queer, um, self-identified lesbian, right, performance artist. And she takes this quintessential garment of Indian femininity, one that in many ways, right, is overdetermined by Hindu spirituality, by compulsory heterosexuality. If we think about the sari, right, it's this kind of like quintessential garment of Indian heterofemininity. And she transforms it into a visual representation of untold histories of anti-Black and anti-Brown female violence under Kenyan colonial and post-colonial rule. Um, and so I read this, this use of the sari as what I call a material catechesis or an intentional misapplication of the sari's material form, right? So rather than it's signaling Patel's like authentic Indian femininity, um, she wants to use the sari to represent these forms of anti-Black and anti-Brown violence that sort of dislodge the sari from identity politics, right? From um, reproducing this narrative of the Indian, the diasporic Indian woman um, as a replication of the, the national Indian woman. Um, and so, you know, for me, that those untold stories of um, these shared histories between black and brown women are ones that actually emerge through the way Patel uses the saris. And we wouldn't get those stories right within these male um, centered narratives of diaspora. Um, and I, and I even go on to argue that one of the upshots of thinking through these, you know, Afro Asian kind of female alliances in that chapter um, allows us to also rethink the racialized class structure of Indians in Kenya, where even though South Asian Kenyans fought for independence from the British with their Black Kenyan counterparts, South Asians have really maintained control of the economy in much of East Africa. And so mapping how, you know, these different scales of anti-Black and anti-Brown female violence um, are happening concurrently can allow us to think differently about the divide and conquer logic of empire in which, right, the British really privileged Indian colonial subjects over black subjects. 
in addition to allowing us to think differently about the bromance, what I, what I and other feminists have called the bromance of Afro-Asian brotherhood, which is really the dominant narrative we hear when we think about cross-racial alliances between African and Asian diasporas, right? So like, what about Afro-Asian feminist and female alliances? Like, where where would we find those stories? And what one of the most fascinating things that happens in that chapter is we find them in the, in the sari, right? In the way that Patel uses this garment that I think would completely pass under the radar, right? Of these um, male-centered narratives. Right. I, I think, yeah, I think that chapter was probably my favorite chapter and and it does so much to highlight those generative aspects of beauty and I was particularly spoke to that quite a bit about these alliances and and you take this concept from Trin Minha this concept of speaking nearby Mm -hmm. that really transformed this not just transnational journeys right not just physical journeys from Kenya to uh, the United Kingdom to then uh, the United States but also, this mobility is then has the capacity of becoming a site for mobilization, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which we're seeing so much uh, right now about how to position yourself, right? Especially within the American context of how do brown folks position themselves in narratives of anti-blackness, right? In in fights against anti-black uh, sentiment. So uh, I think that's really significant, Uh and you sort of did a good job of sort of uh, answering those already without me asking those questions. But, uh, <laughs> but, but that's something that I was thinking about and does so much to take what you said, like this frivolous thing and turn it into something more uh, generative and quote unquote serious. Um, one question that I have, and we'll come back to the other chapters as well and, and more themes is this, you mentioned this idea of the slowed down method. Mm-hmm. Uh, in uh, and, and how you approach your uh, quote-unquote uh, field site or whatever you may want to call it, right? Uh, and and if you could speak a little about that and how that sort of helps you constitute uh, the archive as well as your quote-unquote data and, and what that does. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. Yeah. Um, so I think this question of the method and the slow method that are, I think I call it a slow reading practice, um, really gets at one of the interventions I hope I make in the book, which is through the method of assemblage um, or the concept of assemblage. So I define uh, assemblage or assemblage, right, in French um, as allowing us to track smaller scale shifts in culture and economy um, under globalization that we might that might otherwise elude capture. 
Um, so really by assemblage, what I mean is an aggregation or a pooling together of objects um, that are marked by radical difference or even a seeming incommensurability, right? That don't otherwise seem that they're related to each other that allow us to map these shifts. So one of the one of the upshots of the concept of assemblage is that it allows me not to think of beauty as a fixed set of objects or figures, right? So this is what I think distinguishes the book from a lot of work that is out there on Indian beauty and fashion, which tends to focus on, right, like the beauty pageant or skin lightning. Um, And for me, all of these objects and practices and performances of beauty are connected. Um, even if they're not connected by likeness, right? So they're heterogeneous um, connections, as an, and as I say, um, constitute right a, a, a really varied field of embodiments, performances, commodities, consumption practices, events, and desires. Um, so this idea of assemblage really allowed me to loosen and multiply what counts as beauty. So I'm not just looking, for example, at the bindi as a sartorial icon of Indian womanhood, but I'm looking at the representation of the bindi in experimental feminist media, such as the bindi porn that I discussed in in chapter four. Um, And so that was one thing that assemblage allowed me to do. But assemblages, for those who have read a lot of work um, in assemblage theory, often lend themselves to a kind of hyperkinetic or expansive diagramming and mapping. And I'm thinking here, especially of my colleague Jasper Poir's deployment of the concept of assemblage in her work on post 9-11 terrorist assemblages. Um, And I think this idea of Uh, the the speed of assemblages has to do with the temporality of assemblages as always emergent and moving along unpredictable lines of flight. So in her book called Terrorist Assemblages, um, Dr. Dr. Poirot actually tracks, right, the way that these assemblages of terror move in these unpredictable ways. Um, And that in order to track them, you have to kind of be moving quickly with them. Um, but for me, if we think about how assemblage allows us to track these smaller scale shifts in economy and culture, for me, that really meant slowing down to linger on where beauty had a seemingly minor or fleeting presence um, and how that just kind of lingering in that space of the fleeting or the minor illuminates these emergent possibilities of belonging and unbelonging. Um, And so that's why, you know, each chapter is really, I mean, it really does deploy close reading in a lot of ways, but I think that close reading practice is really warranted in order to get at like, what is beauty doing in this moment, right? In this instance. And, I think you see this really well in chapter three, where I analyze the short story pageant by Pallavi Dixit. Um, And it's this kind of not very well-known story that I stumbled upon um, when I was doing some research on the Miss India USA beauty pageant. And it has to do with um, this Miss India USA pageant contestant, Miss Kentucky, who 
realizes that she doesn't really fit the pageant's definitions of idealized diasporic beauty and femininity. And part of the reason she doesn't is because she comes from a region in the U.S. that has been really underexplored within uh, scholarship on diaspora, which is the U.S. South. And she sort of is visibly jealous of Miss New Jersey, right, um, which has right one of the largest concentrations of Indians in the U.S. diaspora um, and is really well known, right, for its little India. And uh, she gets jealous of Miss New Jersey and ends up running out of the pageant. And when she does, she finds herself in the parking lot um, next to these two South Asian quasi-legal immigrant male wait staff. So they're the ones who are serving the food at the pageant to all of the largely Indian American bourgeoisie who's in attendance at the pageant. And it leads to this, um, you know, without getting into too much detail, it leads to the situation where both Miss Kentucky as a kind of eccentric subject from the U.S. South and the wait staff as eccentric subjects, not eccentric as in strange, but eccentric as an outside of, um, you know, to the middle class kind of ethos of the pageant. So you have this regional, right, uh, aspect with Miss Kentucky being from the U.S. South. And then you have this class aspect with the two male wait staff um, being obviously working class subjects encountering each other in this unlikely space because they both don't really fit into the normative narrative of the pageant. And they end up having this very stilted but interesting conversation about the judgments of beauty in the pageant and, you know, who should win and who shouldn't win, um, who's Indian, who's not Indian. And then uh, Miss Kentucky ends up singing this guzzle, which is actually uh, the performance she had prepared <clears throat> for the talent part of the competition but which really wouldn't have been recognized as that interesting because so much of the Miss India USA pageant traffics in Bollywood idioms, both in terms of the talent competition, but also in terms of the aesthetics of the pageant where there's always Bollywood music playing like in the background um, for the entertainment of the spectators. And it's, but the two service sector workers actually appreciate um, the beauty of the guzzle. And it's this really brief moment where these three unlikely co-ethnics are bound together by this community of sound, right? By this song that, that is melancholy and sad and kind of affectively marks all of their outsider statuses in relation to the pageant. Um, and so lingering on that, you know, that moment, this very brief ephemeral moment of possibility, right? Where you have this affiliation that's created between, um, that's created across class difference, across citizenship status and across gender. Um, you know, beauty makes this possible, even, it's, even if it's through the failure of Miss Kentucky to adhere to a certain standard of beauty, right? And I do talk about that in the introduction, that it's not just where beauty exists that makes these affiliations possible, but it's also where it fails, right? Where beauty is invoked and then for whatever reason, no longer becomes aspirational or um, that it fails in its aspiration, that these, these kinds of connections are made possible. So for me, that, 
that slowing down and, you know, really tracking through those moments are the only way to, to get at those moments of possibility. Yeah, yeah. Those moments of affiliation and intimacy that beauty makes possible were really interesting to sort of read in your text. One of the things that's also particularly interested, interesting in your text is the fact that beauty becomes inextricably linked to these narratives of social mobility, not just mm-hmm. physical mobility. Mm-hmm. And, and you sort of touched on that uh, in your earlier sort of uh, answers, but could you sort of get into that a little bit? Yeah, so I like I, I like that you're thinking about mobility in this way that it's not literal movement all the time. But I think this idea of social mobility um, really comes across in the second chapter of the book, um, where I read the work of Jhumpa Lahiri, um, specifically her collection of short stories, um, interpretive maladies, um, and so I'm really interested in how. Um, the affective force of beauty or the way that, you know, beauty makes people feel uh, in these stories actually can work to critique um, the political and economic processes of of globalization um, and travel. And part of how they do this is through social mobility or immobility. So um, if we think about the chapter, um, sorry, the, my reading of, um, the, the short story, Sexy, um, which is in fact one of my favorite stories to, to read and teach um, because of the way it, it to me, really theorizes social mobility. Um, in that story, um, you have, right, the this iconic figure of the Bollywood actress Madhuri Dixit becoming a source of of white anxiety for the white female protagonist whose name is Miranda. Um, And for those who may not be familiar with the story, the story just in a nutshell is that there's this white American woman who's from the U.S. Midwest who meets and sort of becomes infatuated with an, an Indian American man named Dave, and they end up having an affair while Dave's wife uh, who's unnamed, uh, is in India visiting her family. And the only thing that Miranda knows about Dave's wife is that she's beautiful and she looks like this actress named Madhuri Dixit. Now, Miranda doesn't know who this is, um, but she sort of becomes obsessed <laughs> with finding out what Dave's wife looks like and who this Madhuri Dixit is. And so she you know, goes to an Indian video store and sees the covers of Bollywood videos and without really knowing if any of these women are Madhuri Dixit sort of concludes that, okay, this woman must be really beautiful. Um, When she realizes that, um, that moment of recognizing that Dave's wife is, has the beauty of Madhuri Dixit um, is the moment where Miranda realizes that her own white feminine beauty is deeply provincialized. Um, It forces her to recognize how she's in fact stubbornly rooted to the U.S. nation, right? In a way that Dave and his wife are not as Indian subjects or Indian American subjects, right? They are marked by a kind of cosmopolitan sensibility that she doesn't have, um, but that she really wants. 
and so, right, I mean, we know that Dave's wife has traveled abroad. We know that Madhuri Dixit is this kind of global uh, icon of Bollywood cinema. And Miranda's the opposite of that. <laughs> she has none of the kind of sexual or cultural capital of these Indian women. Um, and so here's a moment where it's not Miranda's literal inability, right, to traverse national borders. I mean, she probably could if she wanted to, but it's her lack of kind of cultural capital that would enable her to be read as a globally sexy body, right, in the way that that Dixit and, and Dave's wife um, are read, at least in her kind of racist imagination. Um, and this also happens in the story Interpreter of Maladies. It happens the same thing with the post-colonial male protagonist, Mr. Kapasi, who realizes that he actually doesn't possess the sexual capital of the non-resident Indian woman who he's taking on a guided tour. Um, he doesn't have the sexual capital that would allow him to be read as this kind of global woman. Um, and this is particularly devastating for Mr. Kapasi because his dream is actually to become an interpreter of languages for the UN, right? He has already imagined his dream is to be this kind of global citizen or citizen of the world through his job. But he realizes that he doesn't, that what really might get you, right, that global kind of, uh, what, what might mark you as global is this sexual capital that he doesn't have. And so he too, though differently than Miranda, remains stubbornly rooted to the Indian nation, right? So where for Miranda, she's provincialized in her whiteness as connected to the U.S. nation. For, for Mr. Kapasi, he's sort of stubbornly rooted to the Indian nation. So you get, right, the lack of um, social mobility from two very different subject positions, right? The white American woman and the, the, the post-colonial Indian man. Right. No, thank you for that. And and you sort of mentioned cosmopolitanism, but the word that you sort of also use in your text is cosmopolitics, mm -hmm. especially when you discuss the work and celebrity of uh, Chumpa Lahiri. And I was wondering how this concept of cosmopolitics is related to those concepts of sexual and aesthetic capital that you also discussed in chapter two. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the term cosmopolitics is a term I borrow from the cosmopolitan theorists Feng Che and Bruce Robbins. Um, so I would really recommend folks look at their work if they're interested in the term itself. Um, but really what they mean by the concept of cosmopolitics is a concept that intervenes into these kind of liberal strains of cosmopolitanism that privilege capitalist mobility across national borders, right? So this idea that everyone should aspire to, to travel, that traveling around the world will make you like a morally upright citizen, right? Will make you a better person. Um, and instead, they're really interested in how the globalization of capital can produce multiple scales of attachment and detachment um, that are not collapsed into this, you know, this kind of privileged subject position. So for them, like cosmopolitics actually affects everyone, regardless of whether one has the, the privilege of, of literally moving across national borders. So I was interested in how feminine beauty, Indian feminine beauty in Lahiri's stories um, 
could critique the, you know, this idea of migration and travel, this, this cosmopolitan sensibility that you might otherwise assume beauty would adhere to, right? That like being beautiful is a kind of capital that can allow you to move and be this, right? Be like a Madhuri Dixit. Um, I was really interested in how Indian beauty seems to push against this celebratory idea of travel and mobility and the way that they enable or foreclose certain kinds of interracial, intraracial, or cross-racial intimacies. Um, So even though beauty in all of these stories, Indian beauty in particular, is attached to to this kind of fetishizing of racial difference that we might see in liberal cosmopolitanism, right, where we go to another place to study the other or to encounter the other. Um, that even while that's happening in these stories, the affects or feelings that beauty generates end up not celebrating the idea of travel um, and the ease of crossing national borders, but in fact end up provincializing the nation, right? As I mentioned in the in the other example, end up provincializing the U.S. and India. Um, and they also un- unmoor beauty from compulsory heterosexuality. So there's a you know, a real queer sensibility to the to the desire to be like the beautiful Indian woman in these stories, rather than the, the sexual desire to have her, right, which might be the more kind of heteronormative uh, reading. So I, I was, you know, my, my deployment of cosmopolitics was really through a feminist cosmopolitical um, perspective that would allow me to see how beauty uh, doesn't actually necessarily work in the interest of uh, facilitating um, movement and and travel, right? But but could actually wound the logic of those cosmopolitan sensibilities, um, or even uh, detract from them. And and this was really important for me because of the way that I noticed Lahiri herself was often celebrated as you know that that popular coverage of Lahiri as this um, Pulitzer Prize winning Indian American author would often comment on her beauty and kind of collapse it into this um, depoliticized rendering, right, of ethnic beauty. And I wanted to show how, even if that's happening around the figure of Lahiri herself, on the level of her fiction, it's actually pushing against exactly that trend. Right. No, thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Reddy, and for all of your insights. I am Lakshata Malik, and this discussion of fashioning diaspora, beauty, femininity, and South Asian American culture, published by Temple University Press in 2016, has been brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.